David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm talking with Steve D'Angelo, one of the breakout stars of the cannabis revolution, though it's taken him some 40 years to achieve his overnight notoriety. If you're involved in the cannabis in any way and care about the legacy of the plant and its potential to reshape the world, then you must listen to what Steve D'Angelo has to say. You know him from Reed Wars, seen him interviewed on TV, and quoted in major newspapers and magazines. He's the go-to guy if you want some perspective on the industry that's gone from illegal to legal in what seems like the wink of an eye, but has actually been years in the making. When it was underground, Steve D'Angelo was there, behind the scenes pushing for legalization, and now we're reaping the rewards of his efforts though he would be quick to mention that he has not done it alone. In addition to founding Harborside, the world's largest medical marijuana dispensary, he's also become a cannabis entrepreneur as president of ArcView, an invite-only event for institutional and accredited investors looking to get into one of the world's fastest-growing enterprises. In this episode of Light Culture, He explains why he hasn't been comfortable talking about the spiritual aspects of the plant until now. He pays tribute to the counterculture that persevered and suffered through the years of prohibition and presents a plan for reconciling with the non-compliant growers in the Emerald Triangle, now under siege by Governor Gavin Newsom, a man he would otherwise like to see elected President of the United States. Steve, hello. David, hello. Good. Thank you for being on my show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. As one of the cannabis OGs, you've often been described as the father of the cannabis industry. I also prefer the Pied Piper of Pot and also the Evangelist. How do you feel with those titles? Do you think they're they're fitting? Oh yeah, you can you know you can put them all uh, right underneath my name. <laughs> I will gracefully and gratefully accept them as honorifics. Thank you for being so appreciative. Definitely. As the father, would you have anything messages for your children who are out there listening with regard to cannabis and and your life experience? Yeah, the basic message uh, that I would that I would deliver is to take the lessons that the cannabis plant teaches us seriously and do everything that you can to incorporate them into your life and and your business activities. A lot of the younger people I know don't really know the counterculture history. So I'd like to spend a little time talking about that because I know you were there back in the beginning. Yeah, I I would say that I was really, you know, part of the second wave of cannabis reformers. The very first wave was Allen Ginsberg, Q 
kicking things off in, in, in 1962, 1963 in, in New York City. Um, I became a cannabis activist in, in 1974. So, yep, I've, uh, I've been around for a while. You've been around. And one of your mentors is, is some, or I, I say mentors, but it, you, you tell me it might be an inspiration or exactly how you would describe your relationship with someone I admire very much who I've never met, but whose book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, was seminal in my life. Of course, we're talking about Jack Herrera, who laid out a case for legalizing hemp that is valid today as it was when it was written so many years ago. I would categorize it as one of the most influential books ever written, in my opinion. And you knew him very well, I understand, even went on tour with him. Could you tell me what he was like? I mean, I feel like I know so little about the man. Jack was full of what I call divine madness. He was an incredibly passionate, heart-driven guy, uh, completely and totally uncompromising. He came into our lives, most notably, in in around 1986 in Washington, D.C., I was the organizer of a house, a big uh, hippie house with like 10 bedrooms and a recording studio and weekend uh, meltdown parties. And uh, so we called this place the Nut House. And, and it was the 1980s, which was a grim time for cannabis activism in Washington, D.C. And Jack flew in from California. And I'll never forget, he, you know, he came bounding up. Uh, the, the front porch of this old Victorian, and he's got this bag across his shoulders. He barrels into the front door, and he grabs this sheaf of papers out of his bag, and he starts waving it in the air. He's like, Steve, Steve, sit down, sit down. Here, you got to read this, read this, read this right now. Read it, read it. And he, and he said, they're going to have to change the laws. You got to read this right. And he was like, literally, he had just come in off of a road trip and he wanted me to stop. I wasn't really expecting him to stop whatever I was doing and read the whole thing right then and there. Well, Jack was a very persuasive guy. So I sat down and I started reading. And, you know, not long after that, I was jumping up and down and going, Jack, Jack, you've got it. You nailed it. They're going to have to make it legal now. And what he had done was for the first time he had uncovered the hidden history of cannabis. You know, all we knew about cannabis in the early days when it first came into our hands was that it helped us be more like the people we really wanted to be, that it, it helped us be more open-minded and tolerant and, 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 and open to experimentation and joyous and, and be more peaceful uh, and less argumentative with, with each other to get more in touch with nature. And, and we hope that if other people consumed cannabis, they would have the same experience and, and that if enough of us did that, that eventually someday we would live in, in a better world, right? We had, we had grown up uh, the first generation after World War II and the Holocaust and the Cold War and the nuclear weapons and all of our food and air and water being poisoned. And so we, we, just, we just wanted to change the world. So it wasn't until the 1980s that we learned about this incredible history of this plant, that, that this plant, which had opened our souls, also had this millennia-long history as being one of the most important medicines that human beings had ever used, that, that it also had a millennia-long history of, of being used as a raw material that people have, have made fibers and textiles and oil and food and ships and all sorts of things out of hemp uh, for millennia. So we, we just learned that in the 1980s. And 
what that did for us was really profound because at that time in the 1980s, at the height of the Reagan presidency, we had really been beaten up. Every voice in society was, was talking about how horrible drugs, including cannabis, were. And we knew we were right. We knew we were right in our hearts, but, but, but we were beaten up. And what Jack did is he came in and he gave us the factual basis that we needed to just march right out and claim the moral high ground. And he re-energized our own belief in our own selves. And he was prophetic. Do you think people today give enough credit to the counterculture and, you know, all those people the, the, who are, you know, underground, the growers, the consumers, the sellers, who are kept that alive and, and in, in the face of the war on drugs and, and the persecution and stigmatization and everything else that went with that, there are friends of mine from that generation that feel that the current euphoria regarding legalization denies the reality of what people had to go through, the arrests, the lives, families destroyed, the hardships of being an outlaw, that their efforts are not being acknowledged or appreciated enough today. Do you think there's any way that that could happen, that you know the industry would start looking back as well at the heroes and the people who kept this culture going during all those dark days? Yeah, I absolutely share that feeling, but I don't feel that it's so much a conscious decision to deny that part of our history as it is that it has been overlooked and in in some ways hidden by our own efforts. You know, I've, I've talked a lot about cannabis over the years. For most of that time, I was trying to win over people who didn't have a relationship with the plant, yet I was trying to get laws changed. And there were, there were things that were important to me that I didn't really talk about. Like, I didn't really until recently feel comfortable talking about the spiritual aspects of cannabis consumption and, and how it has been a spiritual teacher and a spiritual guide for me, because I didn't want to be written off as, oh, somebody spouting all that hippie woo-woo stuff. I wanted to talk about the endocannabinoid system, and I wanted to talk about children with epilepsy who were being healed, and I wanted to talk about the cancer-fighting properties of cannabis. I wanted to talk about the, 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 the demonstrable harms of prohibition. But now we've, we've entered another, another era, right, where, where public opinion has dramatically shifted. Cannabis is legal today in many places. It will be legal tomorrow in many more places, and eventually it will be legal everywhere around the world. And so now it is both safe and really, really important to tell the stories of cannabis. In fact, it's, it's what I will be dedicating a, a lot of my time and energy to moving forward. Cannabis, over the course of all of the years that the, that the counterculture carried this plant uh, through the darkest years of prohibition, at great cost, at great sacrifice, living underneath the helicopters uh, for generations, having uh, generations of people arrested and, and, and going to prison still uh, keeping on and keeping on. Those stories do need to be told now, and they can be told now. And I think it's really important because what happened in those years is that most of the people who were involved with cannabis were people who had a close personal relationship to the plant. And, and learned lessons from the planet, informed the way that we lived our lives and engaged with each other. And, and in the aggregate, 
It built a culture, a very special culture, a culture that promotes a very different set of values than mainstream culture does. And what we are in risk of today is, is as companies that, that are started by people who don't have that connection to cannabis, bring cannabis to millions and millions of new adopters who also don't have a connection with cannabis, it's going to be more and more challenging to make sure that those cultural lessons that we've learned through this long experience with cannabis are transmitted on to the next new generations of, of cannabis consumers. And, and so uh, talking about our experiences with the plant, how we made it legal, why we were so passionately dedicated to it, why did we live under the helicopters, uh, why did we risk prison, why did we get released from prison and go right back out and do it again? And I believe that the answer to that question is, is because we knew intuitively, uh, even without knowing the science, even without knowing the history, uh, we knew intuitively in our hearts and our souls that cannabis is going to be a powerful tool for, for making the kind of changes that we need to uh, in our world today to, to keep us from from the kind of madness that's going on where countries and tribes and sects are engaging in this viciousness and, and genocide with increasing impunity all over the world and, and our, our food and our air and our water is still being poisoned and young people are in such a state of despair that they compete with each other to find more flamboyant ways to kill each other. Cannabis can help address all of these things. And, and that's the reason that the plant came into, into, into our hands in the first place. And so we need to talk about that and make sure that all the new generations of cannabis consumers understand that. Do you have any nostalgia for those times? Remember, you know, going to your local dealer, sitting around, you know, meeting a lot of interesting people that used to drop by and there was this whole sense of community that was very pal palpable and powerful. And I feel like some of that is lost in the sense when you go into dispensary where it's a very much like a farmer, you know, like a Dwayne Reed or something where you're going to just pick up a product and leaving without a, s a chance to actually engage or share with anybody or partake of the community aspect of it. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I have a variety of, of feelings about that, right? One is that we were able to build what we built and the culture that we built because the people in the mainstream society weren't interested in cannabis. They rejected it and they left it to us. And, and, and so the people who, who built this culture were people who were on the margins of society, were kind of looking in for one reason or another. And now that has changed. And on the one hand, I miss this beautiful space that we are able to create with each other. You know, one example is in, you know, uh, in the nonprofit, semi-regulated, not uber competitive world of California pre-1118, Harborside was able to give away $6 million, almost $6 million worth of free holistic healing services, very much in the spirit of cannabis, right? And we can't do that today because we've got competitors who are eating our lunch who are putting billboards right over top of our, our shops who are opening right across the street and, and we have to compete with them. And so those resources have to have to go into competition. And, and that feels very sad to me. On the other hand, I'm traveling around the world. I'm traveling to places like Arkansas and people are coming up to me 
And they're telling me stories of how their relatives' lives have been saved because of the new cannabis laws that have been passed in those states. And, and I go to other countries around the world and I see the same thing. And I know really that millions and millions of people's lives are, are being affected now, now that we have put this plant into the hands of global commerce. It's being spread uh, all around the world and it's doing phenomenal good. So for me, I think that as much as I miss those days, as much as I feel pain about some of these changes, I think that what we're seeing is, is, is the real destiny of the cannabis plant, that she needs to be spread all around the world and come into the hands of everybody who, who, who needs her, that the urgency of the crises that we're facing in the world today is such that, that there's no time to waste. And so really, when my better self is looking at it and thinking about it, and I see companies that used to make products out of tobacco or alcohol or pharma who are now beginning to get into cannabis and, and, and put their energies and their efforts and their power behind doing that. I really think that it's the culmination of, of everything that we've been working for. It is the force that ultimately is going to allow us to change the world in the ways that we wanted to all those years ago. In fact, you wrote a book where you discuss some of this changes because uh, well, the book I'm referring to is The Cannabis Manifesto, A New Paradigm of Wellness. And one aspect of that is the, uh, is the whole concept of wellness that you just started to, to talk about because we have never really seen that until recently. Right now, there's a lot of research going on. It was forbidden to even research the plant and see what its properties could actually be and in many ways they could help everybody. But instead, marijuana was stigmatized as an intoxicant and, you know, people were stigmatized as a result of that. They were called stoners and made to feel bad with all the propaganda that was being rained down on them by the government, spending billions of dollars trying to convince anybody that smoked that there were, you know, stoners and you know, useless to society and just dregs of the universe. But actually, there's other properties here that we hadn't even explored. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the reach and the power of the prohibitionist voices uh, was so strong for so long. It permeated society so deeply that it even crept into the hearts and the minds of people who have an intimate relationship with cannabis, who love the plant, who have seen the benefits and value that it's, that it's brought to their lives. I call it lingering stoner shame. And it's when the only lens that you've ever seen to look at cannabis is the prohibitionist lens, it's easy to misperceive the plant. Like people come up to me all the time and say something like, Steve, thank you for your work. I'm so glad that you that you serve so many medical patients and 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 that's such an important thing and I totally support you and me myself you know I've consumed cannabis my whole life but I'm not a patient I'm not sick you know I I just like to get high and whenever I hear that I ask people I'm like so tell me then specifically when do you use cannabis and how does that high affect you how does it make your life different what's different like, you know, if I'm not using cannabis, I get off work. Uh, it's been a long day. Maybe I had a fight with the boss or I just didn't get as much work done as I wanted to get done. I'm feeling frustrated and irritable. I, I got a sour stomach. My back is aching. 
I'm sitting in rush hour traffic. I'm getting more and more pissed off. I'm not really looking forward to getting home and telling my wife what a shitty day I had or trying to play with the kids. Dinner is, is usually kind of unappetizing to me. And, and after dinner, I'll, I'll sit down in my easy chair in front of the TV and zone out. And I usually doze off. And but then I wake up in the middle of the night. I can't get back to sleep. I go in the bedroom. My wife's kind of irritated. And I kind of lay there. It's the morning comes and I have to do it all over again. But with cannabis, it's really different. I'm, I'm not irritated at the, at the end of the day or frustrated, uh, no matter how bad a day I've had. Uh, I'm sitting in rush hour traffic and I'm, I'm not dreading getting home. My back isn't aching. My stomach isn't sour. When I get home, I'm, I'm happy to reunite with my wife, no matter what kind of day I had. And I have as much fun playing with the kids as they have playing with me. I, dinners, it's always wonderful. Whatever it is, it tastes great. And after dinner, uh, I get to, to put the kids to bed. And, and then me and my wife have some extra special intimate time uh, because of the cannabis. And so cannabis makes my life a lot better. But, you know, I really like to get high, but I'm not sick. <laughs> <clears throat> And I look at that, right? I'm like, what would happen if somebody told that same story to a medical doctor? They would be diagnosed with uh, acid reflux, arthritis, anger management, uh, low libido, insomnia, depression, anxiety, and would be prescribed a raft of drugs that you see advertised in a parade uh, on our televisions every night, and they come along with the side effects that are like something out of a Stephen King novel, right? So we look at cannabis through this prohibitionist lens so many times ourselves, and it's important that we that we understand cannabis really as a wellness product. And wellness isn't just cancer or Alzheimer's or epilepsy. Wellness is about things like extending your patience sparking your creativity, waking up your sense of play, heightening appreciation of nature, teaching nonviolent ways of resolving conflict, the way that cannabis can turn an argument into a discussion or a walk through a park into a spiritual experience, right? These things aren't about getting high. These are the most valuable and important parts of our lives. Uh, it's, it, it could not be more about wellness. I've noticed that people who had stopped smoking are coming back. In many cases, when I talk to someone, he says, oh, you know, I haven't smoked in years, but recently I got some and it really feels great. And it's interesting because of the, the stigmatization and this more normalization that we're in right now. It's made people feel that they can go back. I think people were just scared off. So many people had smoked years ago. And then just like felt like, oh, no, this is not a right thing for me to do. I better stop. And But now, in fact, they're going back. And a lot of it is with the CBD wellness aspect of it is bringing them back, especially women. And CBD is something we didn't even know anything about, did we, back then? No, it, it was impossible to know about. I'll tell you how we discovered back in, in, the, in the early days, all we had was cannabis. You couldn't identify anything. Harborside, my dispensary in Oakland, California, was the first dispensary anywhere in the world to provide tested cannabis to our patients. And in order to do that, we had to start a new company, Steep Hill Laboratory, because every single testing lab in the Bay Area 
turned us down because of federal law. It was impossible. And we treated the first child with Dravet syndrome, uh, childhood epilepsy, with a CBD-rich cannabis. That was that was 2011. So it's it's a fairly recent development. The interesting thing, though, is that you know what we found is that it's not any single cannabinoid in cannabis that's important or most important, right? There's THC, there's CBD, but there's something like a total of about 140 different cannabinoids. There's CBN, there's CBG, there's CBDA, there's THCA, and every single one of them that's been looked at has shown some type of therapeutic effect. And different ratios and combinations of those cannabinoids have distinct different therapeutic effects. So what we talk about is the entourage effect, um, how you put different cannabinoids together and synergistically, they're more powerful than any of them are alone. I'll give you one example. Uh, What we found with uh, children who have Dravet syndrome, uh, very, very severe form of epilepsy, was that a a pure 100% CBD formula was only about 50% as effective as a 19 to 1 formula that had one part of THC to 19 parts of CBD. That doubled the efficacy of the cannabis, both in terms of the number of children that it worked for and the, and the power of, of the therapeutic effect. Yeah, there seems to be more science moving in that direction that the THC is is an important part of the the process that it's not enough just to do the CBD alone. And I think, yeah, the more research now is letting us know that there's some properties in there that we can't ignore. And, you know, I guess it's going to create some kind of legal hassle with regard to the separation of those two products, right? The the marijuana and the CBD right now in two separate worlds? Yeah, but see, I mean, THC is not the only psychoactive compound in, in cannabis. There's another compound called THCV, um, which is also psychoactive and has a, a fairly distinctly different effect from, from THC. Where we're moving in the future is a place where I believe the majority of medicines in the world are going to be made from cannabis and where we will be combining specific cannabinoids and also another class of compounds you find in the cannabis plant called terpenes to provide formulations for specific medical conditions. There's some researchers, some of the people who have been working with cannabis in the world the longest who believe that uh, that the right combinations of cannabinoids and terpenes uh, might prove to be effective for every known human medical condition. Unbelievable, right? To imagine that this product or this plant that has been, you know, suppressed and burned it for so many years could actually be something that could help mankind universally in this way. Yes. Well, I believe that that absolutely uh, is the case, that uh, that cannabis is a not just a pharmaceutical treasure chest, a therapeutic treasure chest, but that it really offers us the opportunity to change our world in, in a variety of, of, of beneficial ways. There's other aspect, right, to your, to your life. I know you launched the cannabis industry's first investment and research firm, 
the ArcView group. What was the investment environment then and how it has it changed? We started the ArcView group in 2009. California was the only legal cannabis state in the country. Commercial cannabis activities in California were restricted to medical cannabis and all activities were nonprofit. My co-founder, Troy Dayton, and I believed that the cannabis industry had potential to, to grow. You know, this was oh, when Obama had just gotten elected and, and, and being students of American history, we knew that, that whoever came after Obama was likely to be uglier, not prettier. <laughs> And so we had a limited period of time to take advantage of the Obama presidency to to move the ball of cannabis reform so far down the field that the next administration wouldn't be able to roll it back on us. And and we figured that the way to do that was to create a legal, a profitable, politically engaged cannabis industry to harness the engine of free enterprise to the train of social justice. And so the RPU Group was the first company that brought investors uh, together with cannabis opportunities and cannabis entrepreneurs and helped facilitate investments into the cannabis space. And I think it was a wise decision on, on my and Troy's part, I think, that had we not done that, you wouldn't have seen the amazing explosion of cannabis investment that you've seen since 2009, between 2009 and the election of, of Donald Trump, we went from this one nonprofit medical cannabis market in California to having now um, some type of, of cannabis market in over 30 states and, and a situation where there's only four states in the country that have not reformed their cannabis laws in, in some way. And we've seen Canada, the first G7 country uh, to legalize cannabis at the federal level. We are seeing uh, this movement spread uh, all over the world, and it's largely being driven by that industry, by that legal industry that, that, that we decided to create back in 2009. But for that progress, I think that Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, uh, our last attorney general, would assuredly have come after the industry in a, in a very, very uh, aggressive way. I might well have been sitting in federal prison right now uh, rather than talking to you on this show. Wow. Well, I'm glad he's gone. Uh, most recently you held... Glad he's gone and glad, you know, I mean, more, <laughs> more importantly, right? Uh, well, not more importantly, but equally importantly, he was unable to come after us the way he wanted to, right? He said a bunch of stupid, crazy, mean stuff, but he wasn't able to actually have the political power, I think, is because the cannabis industry looks so different today uh, than from the way that it that it looked in 2009 when we created the RQ Group. Well, today, it's obviously a way that states, countries, in, in case of Canada where you had your last one in Vancouver, but it's a way to, to make money now, and the governments are very interested in doing that. So it's kind of interesting that it comes in, in the middle of this reactionary government that we're having is the one that's uh, kind of facilitating or at least letting this continue to, to, to grow in its kind of weird fashion that it is, given that it's not legal nationally, but it's legal in the states and created this whole kind of crazy way of doing business, I guess, or not doing business, right? You can't go across state lines. There's all these limitations of how you can 
work, and especially in Canada, where the regulations are much, much stronger than in California, which was pretty much of un unregulated for so many years. Well, let's just talk about Vancouver for a minute, because that's where Burb is located, the sponsor of the show. And it's a very peculiar city in itself, because it has this history as well with the, with the plant. Uh, so why did you pick Vancouver to do this uh, Arcview last one? And what happened there? Any, any news you can report? Well, why do we pick Camp Vancouver? Well, Vancouver is a West Coast city. It has a very, very deep and long history with, with cannabis. It is like the rest of Canada uh, in the process of building a new legal cannabis industry. And as that industry is being built, there's a tremendous number of opportunities for investors. And Vancouver is just a lovely, lovely place, especially at this time of year. We got a few days of delightful, beautiful weather. And I still am carrying around the beautiful images of the, of the harbor in, in Vancouver. It's just a stunningly beautiful place. Um, what happened there is, is what happens at most ARCU conferences. You know, uh, most cannabis conferences you go to, there's very large rooms full of a lot of people and, and they listen to, to presentations and then those rooms empty. And there's a lot of large crowds of people milling around in, in hallways with each other. And, that's not what happens at ArcView, right? At ArcView, it's a smaller curated group. There's generally not more than five or 600 people there. Everybody who is in the room is somebody who has been collect, selected and invited to provide value to everybody else in the room. And generally what happens is entrepreneurs will get up on the stage. Uh, they will describe the investment opportunity that they have available. They'll make their pitch to the investors. And then by the time they get off the stage and walk out of the room, you'll, you'll see two or three or four uh, investors following them out. And so instead of seeing large groups of people milling around in hallways, what you see is these very intense groups of three or four people huddled around a computer or around a spreadsheet, negotiating terms, um, actually making deals. So ArcView is, is the place really where, where the deals happen. I know you were, I think you know Governor Newsom, right, in California? Did you work with him on writing the law or consult with him on that at all? I did not directly work with Governor Newsom. I uh, was an early supporter of the governor. Um, I remain a, a, a strong supporter of his uh, governorship, and I, I hope that one day he's president of the United mm -hmm. States of America. I think that he is one of these very, very rare uh, political creatures who actually makes decisions from a values-based place rather than a matter of political expediency. I have, however, hired the uh, former director of Gavin Newsom's Blue Ribbon Commission on Cannabis Reform, uh, another extraordinary person named named Conrad Gregory, who worked right at the at the hands of of the governor when the governor was the lieutenant governor. So I'm familiar with some of the governor's thinking, and I um, I'm a huge fan. Recently, I read that the governor was uh, requesting 150 helicopters or so to go after non-compliant growers in Northern California, which uh, just brings me to this whole other I, you know subject of what are we going to do with the black market, the gray market, the underground world where there's still a lot of business going on. You know, how are we going to? deal with those people? How are we going to treat them? 
in a way that's respectful of, of what they've done and their history and get them into the legal world if that's what they want? Or what, what can we do to help those people? Well, there's way more effective ways than doing it with helicopters. My support of the governor doesn't mean I support all of his positions. And this is a place where I disagree with him. A, because it's wrong. It's, it's not just. It's not right. Uh, it shouldn't happen under any circumstances. And B, because it's not going to be effective. All right. Uh, the federal government brought the, the National Guard in. They brought in all kinds of helicopters. They brought in way more resources than the state of California uh, did. And they weren't able to stamp out cannabis growing in the Emerald Triangle. What they did do was terrorize a community and militarize a place that didn't need to be militarized. There's two things that need to happen in the Emerald Triangle, right? Number one, the barriers to entry for small growers to come into the cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry in California, need to be lowered. Right now, it is too difficult, too expensive, too time-consuming, and too bewildering for the majority of small growers to be able to get into the cannabis industry. And those barriers, those regulatory barriers, uh, need to come down. But even after those regulatory barriers come down, we need to recognize that there will be a vast amount of cannabis that's grown in the Emerald Triangle that's not going to make it into the legal system in California, because in California, we grow about five times as much cannabis as the state can consume. That cannabis today is going out of the state illegally. Right? So what we really need to fix the situation in the Emerald Triangle has nothing to do with helicopters and only partially has to do with the state of California. What we really need is interstate and international trade of cannabis. Everybody in the world wants California cannabis. Uh, if we are able to sell it to them, uh, we wouldn't have too much cannabis. We would probably not have enough cannabis. The Emerald Triangle wouldn't be in crisis. The Emerald Triangle would be absolutely thriving. The answer to all the concern about diversion and illegal markets is to, is to have a fully legal market and allow the extraordinarily talented growers of the Emerald Triangle to provide their cannabis to the millions of people around the country and around the world who are very, very eager to have it. I believe that one of the great proponents and, and reasons that we have come this far with cannabis is because of hip-hop. Before it was legal, it was out in the open, part of their lifestyle. They really made it acceptable and certainly popular once again and within the counterculture if you want to you know look at the hip-hop world as a counterculture at the same time we know there's all these social justice issues in play with african americans disproportionately arrested and still in prison in many cases for small amounts of of weed probably they wouldn't be arrested for now and you know it just seems out of whack that we would have people making lots of money on the one hand legally whereas these people who are still in jail for doing something nonviolent at, at the same time. So is there also some action or activism going on around that? Yeah, there are a number of organizations that are working to, A, establish a more diverse cannabis industry and ensure that communities of color that um, have disproportionately been affected by the war on cannabis have an opportunity to, part, to participate in the 
in the industry. There are jurisdictions like the city of Oakland, uh, the city of Los Angeles that have written regulations that are designed to increase uh, representation in the industry uh, from these communities. And there are also efforts going on to address the, the incarceration problem. I've just launched a, a new project uh, called the Last Prisoner Project, which is essentially a, a innocence project for cannabis prisoners to call upon the new legal cannabis industry to the people who are building intergenerational wealth with legal cannabis uh, to fund an organization that will make sure that the 40,000 plus people in the United States who are still uh, incarcerated on cannabis charges, the vast majority of whom are people of color, are released uh, no matter where they are. So those, I think, are, are, are the two main things that we need to do. We need to make sure that the wealth is spread to the communities that have suffered the most. And we have to make sure that we get every single one of our cannabis prisoners out, no matter where they are, uh, anywhere around the world. Our movement isn't done until that goal is accomplished. Great. That's great news. Can you tell us, uh, is there a way that people can find out more information about that organization? Well, we are just in our development phase right now. We are planning a very, very exciting launch event at the end of the summer uh, or the beginning of fall. Uh, I'd be happy to come back on the show once we have that dialed in and, and, and tell you all about it, but we're not quite ready to release it yet. That's great news, though. I'm very happy to hear that. And I want to thank you so much for all your knowledge and everything else that you've been able to tell us today. It was, a, it was a great, great talking with you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for your great questions and your attention, David, and the uh, attention of, of your listeners. I spent uh, most of my career being ignored or being laughed at <laughs> by people who thought I was too crazy to listen to. So having audience is a, is a great blessing to me, and I appreciate it very much. All right. Thank you, Steve D'Angelo. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs>